I, I get to be back next month again, which I'm excited about, so I'm not doing anything mushy this morning. I'm not going to act like this is the last time I'm going to see you for a while, so we're just going to get to it, all right? Let's get our Bibles. Let's go Galatians 5 together. If you have a device with a Bible app on it, turn your Bibles on. Go to Galatians 5 with me. And as you're flipping there, I want to ask you a question. How many of us in the room today would describe ourselves as food junkies? Anybody? Okay, I'm right there with you. Here's my confession, and don't you dare judge me. My name is James, and I am a food junkie, all right? Listen, I love food. When it comes to food, I'm not picky, like at all. I will try anything once, and I found that most things that I try, I end up liking. Uh, I'm a guy who loves a great burger. I love fries. I love wings. I love pizza. Pizza doesn't even have to be that good for me, and I will eat it just because there's cheese and meat on it, okay? I love any type of Asian cuisine. I love good pasta. I love good Mexican food. I mean, anything like that, man, you take me to dinner and I'm in. Anything made of chocolate and peanut butter is a blessing to me. So if you ever wonder, like, how can I bless James? Bring me a Butterfinger or a Reese's peanut butter cup and we'll be friends forever, okay? Uh, Lastly, I am a sucker for an amazing bowl of ice cream. And for me, I don't care what's in the ice cream. I will eat anything in ice cream as long as it's ice cream and it's creamy and good and cold. Like, I'm going to eat it. So I'm a food junkie. Now, here's why the food thing is so tough for me. Because I'm also a fitness junkie. Like, I love being active. I love being in the gym. I love playing sports. I love being healthy. I love being in shape. And I'm going to assume that all of us this morning, we're smart people. So we know if a person wants to be healthy and in shape that it requires that person to eat certain types of food and to stay away from other types of food the majority of the time, right? So this whole food fitness thing, it results in a lot of internal conflict happening inside of me. And I'll give you an example from just a couple weeks ago, okay? A good friend of mine, he and his wife just bought a new house. And so he invited a lot of friends over, including my family and We were going over for a cookout, and it was one of those cookouts where we were supposed to all bring our own meat to throw on the grill, and then we were supposed to bring sides for everyone to share. So I go to Publix, and I grab some lean ground beef, right, the leanest you can buy, and I'm feeling good about that food choice, and I go to uh, the vegetable section, grab some fresh asparagus, take it home, doctor it up, this is what we're going to share, and halfway through the meal as I'm eating asparagus and salad and this lean meat, I'm feeling good about my food choices, I mean, I'm like some of you, and this is the time of year where I'm trying to eat better than I have all year, and I'm trying to kill it in the gym. Like, I started that workout insanity. Have you guys ever done that? Like, if, you, if you're not doing it, don't do it. Like, it's horrible, okay? Like, I'm just telling you, it is crazy hard. It has humbled me. Um, but so I'm doing all this stuff right now, so halfway through the meal, like, I'm feeling good. Until my buddy reaches in the fridge, and he breaks out this container, and he takes the top off of it. And he goes, dude, check out this cake. Now inside of this container is this chocolate cake. I mean, unbelievably delicious looking chocolate cake. Like the moisture is glistening and blinding me. It's, right, it's got this whipped chocolate topping on the top of the cake. And on top of the topping are these little pieces of chocolate candies. And my buddy's going, dude, you got to have a piece. Now, immediately, I'm inside my head trying to talk myself out of having a piece of the cake. And again, I'm saying, dude, you're killing in the gym. You started in Senna. You've been eating so clean. Do not give in to this temptation, which is the chocolate cake. And the whole time I'm trying to talk myself out of it, everybody else that's there, you know what they're doing? 
They're grabbing plates and cutting off slices of cake, and they're doing that stupid thing I didn't want them to do. With every bite, they're going, oh, this is so good. Oh, you got to try some of this. And I'm sitting here thinking, you guys shut up, but I'm nicer than that, so I didn't say it. Ten minutes, I'm looking at this cake. And I'm telling this cake, you are not going to defeat me. I feel like it's laughing in my face. So much peer pressure, James, just give in. So literally after about 10 minutes, you know what I did? I grabbed a piece of the cake. I put it on a piece or on a plate. I admitted to everyone that it had defeated me, and I enjoyed every single bite of it. It was absolutely amazing. Like I thought about having seconds. I didn't, but I thought about it. It was that good. Amazing. Now, listen, I assume that every single one of us in the room, no matter who we are, can identify in some shape, form, fashion, or way what that internal conflict that I just described feels like in your own life. Like, I think all of us in the room know what it feels like to want to do two opposing things at the same time, don't we? We know what it feels like to be wrestling inside going, I want to do that, but I also want to do that. And we don't know how to really deal with that. All of us know what that's like. Well, in the passage we're looking at today from Galatians 5, Paul tells us that if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior... So for those of us in the room who've made a decision at some point in our lives to trust in Jesus as our Savior, the Son of God who died in our place so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be loved by God and accepted by God and know eternal life with God, Paul tells us, if that's true of us, that inside of us there are internal conflicts, opposing desires at work within us all the time. And I want to show you what I mean, so let's go to verses 16 and 17, and we'll just read what Paul has to say about this. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these things are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So Paul's telling us again, you you know Jesus, there are two natures living inside of you, and they're battling all the time. They're trying to produce two opposite lifestyles within you so that those opposite lifestyles flow out of you. And Paul says the first nature that lives within us is a direct result of the Spirit, and he's referring to God's Holy Spirit here. Now, if you go to the Bible, you read about the Holy Spirit, you find out some things, right? You find out that the Holy Spirit, he is the one who's responsible for showing us how much we need a relationship with God through Jesus. He's the one ultimately responsible for convicting us of our sins. And he's the one that gives us new hearts so that we can know Jesus, trust in Jesus, and love Jesus as our God and Savior. Now, here's the other cool thing we know about the Holy Spirit. We know from the Bible that when a person trusts Jesus as their Savior, that God sends his Holy Spirit to come and to live inside of that person. And when the Holy Spirit comes and and lives inside of us after we've accepted Christ as our Savior, he brings with him new desires. He brings with him desires to live the life that God has created us and designed us to live for. But here's the other amazing thing. He doesn't just bring desires with him. He also brings the ability and the power to us so that we can pull off what we now desire, which is to live a new life in Christ. Amazing. Now, Paul says the other side, the flip side of this is what? Our flesh. This is the second nature that lives inside of us as followers of Jesus. And when he uses that word flesh, he's simply referring to the sinful part of us. 
the part of all of us that makes us want to do things regardless of whether or not they honor God or they hurt other people. And here's what you have to understand about your flesh this morning. It will be with you as long as you are alive on this earth. Even if you know Jesus, the flesh, it is a part of you if you are living and moving and breathing. In eternity, you won't have to deal with it any longer. But as long as you're here, there is always going to be a part of you that wants to sin. So listen, if you walked in the door this morning and something inside of you goes, love Jesus, honor Jesus, and you really want to live for that, but also at the same time you're going, there's some jacked up stuff I still want to do. And I don't know why I feel this way. Like, is something wrong with me? I want my life to honor God, but I also have these things that I know don't honor him and I want to do them. Is something wrong with me? Here's what's wrong with you. You ready? You're a Christian. And there are two natures inside of you trying to produce opposite ways of living. That's what's wrong with you. Now, Paul goes on in this passage to describe what this competition between the spirit and the flesh looks like. So I want us to pick back up verse 19, and we're going to keep reading together. Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like that. These. Now, I want to break that verse down, those verses down, so that we can kind of really get a good picture of what our flesh wants to produce in our lives, okay? Um, the first three words that Paul uses in the verses we just read have to do with sexual behavior. Now, before I talk about those words, I just want to say something really quick to those of us in the room who grew up in churches or grew up in a home where somebody said the word sex and you were like, oh my gosh, we don't talk about that around here, right? Like, the only time anybody does that is to make babies, but other than that, like, that is quiet news. Here's all I want to say to you, if that's you. As Christians, we think sex is awesome. Like, we love it. We think it's amazing. Um, we like talking about it. I, see, I got some cheers. At nine o'clock, I think they were the more timid crowd. They're like, I don't know if I should be applauding about that right now. It's okay. If you're married, cheer it on, man. It's good. Here's why we think, here's why we think it's such an amazing thing. Because we believe our God is the one who designed it, created it, and gave it to us as a gift because he's a good God who loves us as his kids. And so we believe it's amazing. But, but here's the other side of this. We believe that when God gave us sex as a gift from him to us, that he gave it to us with a specific design and with specific boundaries in mind. And when you go back to the scriptures and you read about those boundaries, they're really simple. Um, God tells us in the Bible that we should use sex between a man and a woman who are married. Those are the boundaries. And so the three words that Paul points to in this passage, they, they're references to sexual behaviors that lie outside of those boundaries. So when you look at those first two words we read, sexual immorality and impurity, they can refer to a host of different things, such as pornography use, adultery, which is sleeping with somebody that you're not married to while they're married or, or they're married, um, it's also uh, used to refer to fornication, that really big weird F word that just means you're sleeping with somebody that you're not married to. Um, it can refer to sleeping with a prostitute or any unnatural sexual behaviors or practices. The list just keeps going on and on and on. And that word sensuality there, it's just used to describe someone who shows absolutely no moral restraint in his or her sexual behavior. Now, Paul keeps going and he uses two words next that are more religious words. He uses the word idolatry. 
And idolatry, it doesn't have to mean that you like go carve a little wooden idol and you put it on your mantle and you sing songs to it a few times a day, right? Um, Idolatry is when you and I, we take anything in life and we place more value on it than we do on God. So uh, in your life, an idol could be money. In your life, an idol could be a relationship. It could be success. It could be a title that you're chasing after. Anything that you pursue with greater intensity and passion than God, that is an idol in your life. And Paul's telling us your flesh wants you to put things in place of God. And the next word he uses is that word sorcery. This is just a word used to, uh, to refer to the faking of the work of God. If you were here a couple weeks ago when we did Compassion Sunday, we talked a lot about Burkina Faso. And in Burkina, there are actual witch doctors in these bush villages. Now, those witch doctors, they regularly perform miracles, and they call curses down on people, but they don't do it because God gives them that power. They manipulate, they fake the work of God through demonic forces and powers. And Paul, again, he's going sorcery. That's a work of the flesh. Um, Next, Paul uses eight words that describe how our flesh wants to destroy our relationships. Listen to this list. He says our flesh wants to pull us toward enmity. That's hatred towards someone. Toward strife. That's a a reference to someone who's argumentative, just likes to pick fights with people. Jealousy. That's when we're bitter, we're resentful towards someone because of who they are or what they have. Fits of anger. That's pretty self-explanatory, right? That's when you get so angry you lose control and... You start acting crazy. Uh, Rivalries. This is a reference to someone who sees themselves as more important than everybody else around them, and they make sure to live in a way that everybody else around them knows what they think about themselves. Uh, Dissensions, divisions. Those are two words used to describe uh, people who let anything come in between their relationships. Something petty, something crazy, uh, opposing opinions, viewpoints, politics, whatever it may be. Anything that pulls people apart, and then envy, this is when you want what somebody else has. So your flesh wants to use you to destroy your relationships with other people. You see, what our flesh wants to convince us to do is to put ourselves as number one in our lives and not to worry about the way we treat anybody else. Our flesh wants to drag us down that path. Now, lastly, Paul uses two words to refer to substance abuse. He uses the word drunkenness. And he uses the word orgies. That word orgies, there's no sexual implication there. If you look that word up in the Greek New Testament, it's a reference to binge drinking parties. When a bunch of people get together and they drink till they're stupid and silly and can't remember anything the next day. That's what it's a reference to. Now, since we're on the topic of drinking, let me address a big question that people always raise, okay? I know what people always want to know when it comes to drinking. They want to know, does the Bible say it is a sin to drink alcohol? Now listen, I'm a Bible guy. I love the scriptures. I don't like adding anything to it. I don't like taking anything away from it. I'm just a Bible guy. So here's what I want to say to you. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that it is a sin to have a drink of alcohol. But listen to me. Time and time again, the Bible says it is a sin to be drunk. Now, stay with me, because there's a couple things I need to say to you, okay? One, if you're under the age of 21 and you're here this morning, it is a sin for you to drink alcohol at all. And here's why. Because as followers of Jesus, the Bible also tells us that we should obey the law of our land. The law of our land is you don't drink till you're 21 years old. And so if you're under 21 and you drink anything, um, that's sin, okay? Now, secondly, look at me. There's others of us in the room that drinking alcohol for us, it's sinful, and here's why. Because you can't handle it. 
because it's mastered you. Because if you have a sip of alcohol, it turns into two sips and four sips and eight sips, and before you know it, you are drunk. Some of us, listen to me, some of us, we have no business touching alcohol ever because it only leads to one place, drunkenness. There's others of us in the room, right? We can go to the Olive Garden, and we can get a great salad and some pasta, and we can have a glass of wine, and it's no big deal for us. Others of us in the room need to avoid alcohol at all costs because it always goes bad for us when we touch it. And so I would just say this morning, I'm not trying to be legalistic about that issue. I'm just trying to give you simple wisdom. And it's wise for some of you in the room never to drink. Now, I want us to go back to verse 21, and I want you to see what Paul says about people who give in to all these desires, these works of the flesh. He goes on to say, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that's a big verse that we need to stop for a moment and address, okay? When Paul says what he just said in verse 21, he's referring to people who make it a habitual practice to indulge their flesh. He's not referring to people who have the occasional slip-ups, and that's good for all of us, especially maybe for some of us in the room this morning who had a fit of anger this morning while we were trying to get our kids ready for church, right? Like all of us. All of us have slip-ups. None of us in the room are perfect ever, and we won't be until the day we see Jesus face-to-face. What Paul is referring to here, though, is that person who wakes up every day and they just give in to the desires of their flesh while doing absolutely nothing to battle against him. He's referring to that person who just gives in to their sinful nature while feeling no pull in the opposite direction whatsoever. And he's trying to make the point here that the person who lives like that, habitually indulging their flesh while never battling against it, proves by their behavior that they likely don't know Jesus. Now listen, that's hard. It's really hard. Um, It's hard for me because I'm like many of you in the room who know people and love people who if I were to put them on the stage today and say, do you know Jesus? They'd say, oh yeah, yeah, I know Jesus but then they live every day of their lives like they don't know him and it doesn't seem to bother them. Look at me. Some of you in the room this morning, that may be you. Like you may have walked in the room today saying, I know Jesus, I love Jesus. But you live every day indulging your flesh and there's never that pull to battle against it and to live with those new desires that God promises to put in you when you trust him. And see, if that's you, here's all I want to say for you out of love and concern for you today. And just check your heart today. Like, I can't stand on this stage and tell you you don't know Jesus. I can't judge your heart. I can't make that call for you. All I can do is stand on the stage and tell you that time and time again in the scriptures, we are taught that a person who knows Jesus has new desires to live a life that honors Jesus and points other people back to Jesus because the Holy Spirit lives inside of them and he's giving them those desires. And so listen again, I'm not saying you're going to be perfect But your life should be growing and changing and transforming and looking more and more like the life of Jesus every day you have blood pumping through your veins and breath in your lungs. And if that's not happening in your life at all, man, just check your heart today. Make sure you know the God you say you know. And if you don't, here's the great news. God still loves you more than you can ever comprehend. And Jesus still died for you to set you free from whatever you are indulging yourself in presently. 
And he wants to give you hope for your future. He wants to change you and make you into a brand new person. And if you need to trust him to do that today, man, I pray that you will make that decision. Now, Paul, he keeps going. And in verses 22 and 23, he tells us what the Spirit wants to produce in our lives. Let's read this together. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, I love the intentionality of language that Paul uses in verse 22. He says the desire of the Spirit is to produce fruit in the lives of those who know Christ. Now, I want you to think about fruit with me. Any of you guys have fruit trees in your yard? Why why are everybody so shy about fruit? You feel like I'm giving your secret away or something? Like, we can talk afterwards. You can hook me up. But, okay, all right, 9 o'clock was the same. Like, I don't know if I should raise my hand. Think about fruit trees with me. Will a tree produce fruit if it's dead? No. And why? Well, it's simple. Because in order for fruit to grow, there has to be life within a tree or a plant, right? Fruit can only grow from life. If something is dead, it will not produce fruit. Well, Paul, he's trying to get us to understand the same thing here in verses 22 and 23. He's trying to get us to understand that when it comes to people spiritually, that spiritually dead people, meaning people who don't know Jesus, people who don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, those people will always prove that they are spiritually dead by failing to produce the type of fruit that Paul describes in these verses we just read. You see, when a person is spiritually dead, there is absolutely no way that they can ever produce the type of character when left to themselves, that the Holy Spirit wants to produce in them. All that they can pull off when left to themselves are those works of the flesh that we already talked through. And so, listen, here's the amazing thing. You want to know if a person truly knows Jesus? You want to know what to look for? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. If those things are flowing out of a person's life, then man, it is a clear sign that there is spiritual life inside of that person. Spiritual life, they didn't pull off on their own strength through their own efforts, but spiritual life that God gave to them through Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to understand how impossible it is to pull off that list on your own. So so listen to this, love, that word love, it's agape love, supernatural love. It means that you love someone for no reason at all. Even when someone doesn't deserve to be loved, it's exactly how God's loved all of us. That word joy, it's a reference to a joy that a person has in spite of external things, in spite of circumstances. It's a joy founded in Jesus Christ and in him alone and in all he's done for us to save us from sin, death, and hell and to give us new life in Christ, in him, and eternal life with him. This word peace, it's a peace that describes a person who's confident in who God is and he's confident in knowing that God is always in control. It's a peace that refuses to worry, refuses to be anxious, even when life is crumbling around us because we believe God is bigger and stronger. That word patience, it refers to a person who can face trouble and hardship in life without blowing up, without resenting other people, without getting angry at God. The word kindness refers to a person who loves other people so deeply that they make themselves completely vulnerable for the sake of those around them and 
they're so secure in who they are in Christ that they actually enjoy celebrating the successes and the accomplishments of other people in their life. Um, That word goodness, it's a reference to a person who's the same person in every situation. Faithfulness, it's a reference to someone who is fully reliable, always loyal, no matter what, in good times and in bad. Gentleness refers to that person who's truly meek, truly humble, always putting others ahead of themselves. And self-control is a reference to a person who isn't impulsive, isn't reactionary, but always makes decisions based on what is truly most important in life. So think about this again with me. Our flesh is saying to us, do whatever you want. Live how you want. Doesn't matter. Sexually indulge yourself. Uh, Take other things in life and put them ahead of your relationship with God and pursue those things. And don't really worry much about loving God. When it comes to other people, put them beneath you. Elevate yourself over them and don't really worry too much about how you treat them or act towards them. And look for pleasure any chance you get, even if it involves a substance that can go bad for you and destroy your life. And then the spirit inside of us is going, no, 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 wait, I got a better way. I've got a better way. Here's my way. Just love God above everything in life. Be confident in him, trust in him, seek joy and happiness in him and in him alone. Don't put anything ahead of him. There's nothing as valuable as him. Just love him above all else. And when it comes to other people, humble yourself. Love other people like God has loved you. Be kind and gentle and loyal and trustworthy. Love people around you for absolutely no reason at all. And don't be impulsive, don't be reactionary, don't make decisions to seek pleasure and satisfaction in temporary things that can't deliver, but run to God and Him alone and seek satisfaction there and remember what's most important in life. So listen to what Paul describes here, man. He's making it sound like we as followers of Jesus suffer from spiritual split personality disorder, right? I mean, it's almost like we truly do have the angel on one side, the demon on the other, and they're arguing, trying to get us to do what they want us to do. But again, look at me. If you walked in the room this morning and you feel like that, I'm being pulled here, I'm being pulled here, something wrong with me. Listen to me. Let me take the pressure off. You are a completely normal follower of Jesus. And I pray that frees some of you up. But listen, here's the end goal. The end goal is to walk so closely with the Spirit. And Paul tells us this in verse 16, that we are able constantly and consistently to say no to our flesh. The goal is to get to the place in life where we are truly so captivated by what the Holy Spirit wants to do in and through us that we look at the desires of the flesh and they're just not what we want to live for anymore. You see, Paul tells us that, again, in verse 16, if we walk by the Spirit, we won't give into our flesh. You know why that's true, church? Because when you're following the Holy Spirit, there's one place he's going to lead you. You know where that is? To Jesus. That's where he wants to take you. And you see, the closer you move toward Jesus, the more you start to see Jesus for who he is. And the more you see him for who he is, the more you love him. And the more you love him, the more you want to honor him and obey him and be like him. And the more you want to honor him and be like him, the less you want to do the very things that prevent you from pulling that off. I just want you to know this morning that the goal of the Christian life, listen to me, it's not behavior modification, The easy thing to do in a message like this is to throw all those works of the flesh up on the screen and say, look at those things. 
Those are horrible things. None of us should ever want to do those things. Walk out of the room and try really hard not to do those things. But that's not the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is this. It is to fall so deeply in love with Jesus that we start to hold up those desires of the flesh next to him and they look disgusting and unappealing in light of who he is. That's the goal of the Christian life. And so here's the question. How in the world do we get to that place? How in the world do we get to that place where we look at Jesus and we look at all our flesh wants us to do and we go, no, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Well, I think Paul points us in the right direction in these last two verses we'll read and then we'll get ready to close. Verses 24 and 25. All those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit... Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If you take a notes, write down three things, all right? First off, how do you get to the place where Jesus is better for you than anything else in life? First off, you focus on your acceptance. You focus on your acceptance. In the verses we just read, who does Paul say we belong to? Just yell it out. Jesus. He says we belong to Jesus. And I know we've talked about these things throughout this series, but I'm going to say them again this morning because it's good stuff we need to hear regularly. It's because of Jesus' church that none of us in this room have to be perfect people in order to be loved and accepted by God. It's because of Jesus that we can know true meaning and true purpose in life as long as we're living and moving and breathing on this earth. It's because of Jesus and him alone that you and I can know eternal life with God after our lives on this earth are over. It's because of Jesus that all of us in the room who know him are now seen by God as his very own sons. That means that everything that is God's is ours. It means we're fully and totally accepted and loved forever. And it means that nobody in this room is better than anybody else. That we're all equal in the eyes of God. All that's true of us because of Jesus. And the more you wake up each day and remember that you're accepted by God because you belong to Jesus, the more you're going to love Jesus and the less you're going to desire to do the very things that Christ came to lay his life down to free you from. You've got to focus on your acceptance every chance you get. Next thing, you have to question your motives. You have to question your motives. Have you ever just stopped and questioned why you choose to give in to your flesh? Why you choose to sin? Like, let me say it in normal people's language. Have you ever sat back and any of you gone, why do I look at porn? Uh, why do I sleep with so-and-so even though I'm not married to him? Um, why do I constantly have fits of rage and blow up on people? Why do I keep going back to that substance time and time and time and time again? Have you ever just sat back and went, why do I do those things? I want to give you a simple answer that I think really speaks to every person in the room, no matter who we are, okay? I think it's simple. All of us in the room choose to give in to the desires of our flesh at times because our flesh has a way of convincing us that if we don't give in, then we won't truly be happy, we won't truly be satisfied. So again, normal people's language, that translates into, well, I have to look at porn because if I don't, I won't be satisfied sexually. So that's why I do it. Or um, if I don't sleep with that person, they might leave the relationship, and I'm a lot happier when I have them in this relationship, so I need to sleep with them so they'll stick around. Um, I blow up on people and have fits of rage because I want people to know they can't just run over me, and I feel happier, and I feel more content when people leave me alone because they know I'm a hothead. 
I keep going back to that substance time and time again because what I'm walking through right now, it's really tough and the substance makes it easier to deal with. And so I'd rather it be easy than tough, so I'm gonna run back to this. But look, you know what you do when you keep running to those desires of the flesh? You set up false saviors in your life. What I mean by that is this. You're looking to something other than Jesus to give you the true joy, true happiness, true satisfaction that Jesus promised he would give you if you just go to him. So you're trusting in other things to do the job of Jesus in your life. You're saying, I don't think Jesus can fulfill me and satisfy me like this thing can, so I'm going to choose this over him. Right? Listen to me. What I need you to remember this morning is what Paul said in this verse, that if you know Jesus, your flesh and its passions and its desires have been crucified with Jesus Christ. You know what that means? It means that your flesh only has power over you when you give it to it. That your flesh and all of its desires are weak and powerless in your life. And when you wake up each day and you go, why would I choose this over Jesus? You question your motives. What do I want? Well, I want satisfaction. I want to be happy. Well, Jesus promised that. Why would I choose this over him when I know this can't deliver? When you remember what Christ has done for you, you will quit running to false saviors to find what only Jesus can offer you. Last thing is you have to intentionally pursue Jesus. Do you want Jesus to look better to you than all those works of the flesh? You gotta intentionally pursue him. You gotta take steps toward him. Um, Paul, again, in verse 25, he said that we have to keep in step with the Spirit. Let me see if you were listening. If you're following the Spirit, he's going to lead you where? Jesus. He's going to take you toward Jesus. So what are some practical things you can do to keep in step with the Spirit so you ensure that you're moving toward Jesus? I'll give you just a few easy things. And what I'm about to give you, remember, you don't do any of these things to prove yourself to God, to make God love you. You do these things just to follow the Spirit and move closer to Jesus. Uh, First thing, just read this book. That's easy, isn't it? You want to know Jesus more, see Jesus more for who he is? Read this book. It's why you have the book. It's about Jesus. And if you'll read it, you'll know Jesus more. Now, I know the excuse. Some of us go, well, James, I try to read that book, but I can't really understand it. You know what I do when it comes to this book? I cheat, right? Let me explain myself. I have some great study Bibles that explain this book to me. I go to the Christian bookstore or on Amazon, and I buy books to help me understand this better. And then what I do is I read all that stuff, and I write it down, and I come on a stage like this, and I just tell you guys about what I've read. I'm a cheater, right? Listen, I want to give you permission this morning when it comes to this book. Cheat so you can understand it. Use resources available so that you can intentionally pursue Jesus and know him all the more. Spend time in prayer and press into God so that you can hear from him. Ask him to change you. Serve other people around you. You know what serving others does? It causes you to forget about yourself. And when you forget about yourself, guess who you're like? You're like Jesus. Um, Get in a group here. Form some Christian friendships so that you can read the Bible with people and you can pray with them and support them and encourage them and they can encourage you to become more like Jesus. I would encourage you too, don't just come on Sundays and worship God through song here um, while we sing together. Man, we post worship sets on our website all the time. Find those songs, buy the CDs, put them in your CD player in your car while you're driving each day and let your attention and your affection be focused on Jesus and him alone. And you see, the more you do that, the more you take intentional steps to move closer toward Jesus, again, the more you're going to see him for who he is 
and the more you're going to desire, and he's going to look better to you than anything else. Let me go back to my chocolate cake illustration. We'll be done. Don't you think it would have been a lot easier for me to say no to that cake if my buddy would have never shown it to me? If he would have just said, bro, got some chocolate cake, you want a piece? Nope. I don't want a piece. That's not on the insanity diet, right? I'm good. Or if he would have gotten it out and stood like 50 feet across the room and said, hey, dude, you you want a piece? And I'm looking, going, it looks like mud in a container. I'm good. I don't want a piece. Right? But listen, when he took that cake and he put it right in front of my eyes and I saw it for what it was, the decision became a lot tougher for me. That's the goal of the Christian life is to set your eyes on Jesus and to pursue him with all your intensity and your energy so that you can see him for who he is. And when you do that, everything else pales in comparison. I don't know if you grew up in church like I did, but we used to sing a song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will what? They'll grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I want us to pray together and ask God to help that happen in our lives. Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you, God, that you have put your spirit inside of us who know you so that we don't have to give into our flesh. Thank you for loving us like you do, God. I pray this morning that you free people, rescue people from whatever has them in bondage, deliver people from substances, from addictions, from attitudes. I just pray you work supernaturally in this place, God, in the lives of people who desperately need it. God, in this moment, I pray too that you speak to the heart of maybe just that person or those people in this room who've never trusted in Jesus as their savior. And they're living for temporary things. They're indulging themselves. God, I pray that you would show them right now in this moment that there's so much more to live for. Listen, if that's you this morning, you've never trusted Jesus, I just wanna invite you to make that decision now. There's no magic prayer you need to pray but I'll just encourage you to come before God and as your confession, just say something to him like this. Say, God, man, I am a sinner. I know I've made mistakes. I've failed time and time again. I have not lived up to being the person that you created me to be. But God, I believe this morning that's exactly why you sent Jesus. God, that he took the punishment for me, that he died, God, so that my sins could be forgiven and so that I could know you. So God, I'm praying right now, save me, rescue me, forgive me, put your Holy Spirit inside of me, God. I want to live for you and you alone. God promises if you believe those things, confess those things, that he'll save you, that he'll start changing you, and that right now in this moment, man, eternity with him is yours. That is his gift to you. Father God, for the rest of us, help us to remember what's most important in life. Help us, God, to put you before everything out of our great love for you. God, help us to believe Jesus is better than anything else we could give attention or affection to. God, we trust you for that. We love you, and we pray these things in your name.